0: Well, welcome to Front Range. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm the lead pastor. And we're so grateful that you guys are here, whether you're joining us in person or you're watching online, we're grateful to have you. And our hope and prayer is that this will become a home for you, a place where you can build community, discover your purpose, and grow in your faith in Jesus. Now I need to tell you about a couple things that are happening uh, over the next week today. Uh, We have a missions meeting. So if you are interested in any of our mission trips that we have going on this year, then we have a meeting uh, today, uh, this afternoon at our ministry center. You can go online to find out more information or on the screen right behind me. Uh, But man, this isn't you saying I'm definitely going, this is you saying, hey, I'm interested in finding out a little bit more Uh, Here's what I believe, that there are people who are called to go on mission and there are people who are called to support those who go on mission. And if the two of them come together, then we see missions happen and we see people come to know Christ and great things happen. I believe that every person is in one of those two camps. So if you feel like maybe I could be in the camp this year of going then uh, come join us for this mission meeting. You won't be disappointed, man. God's going to do some powerful, powerful things through this church uh, this upcoming summer and some of the missions we have planned. And then next week, next Sunday, uh, we have what's called Next Step with Front Range. It's kind of a way to find out more information about our church and uh, really how to get better connected here at the church. So if you've been coming just for a few weeks or maybe even a few years, but you've never attended this, we'd love to have you. We're going to have free childcare. We'll have free food. We'll uh, take away all the excuses the Broncos aren't in the playoffs who really cares at this point anyways Uh, because nobody no good teams are left Uh, so I see you Chiefs Uh, So come, join us next Sunday. Uh, It'll be a a, a great opportunity for you to get connected here at the church. Uh, Today, we're closing out a series called Speak of the Devil, and it's been a powerful series. Uh, I've heard from so many of you. I believe that there there are times throughout our church where we'll do a series that uh, that series will stick with people for years to come. In fact, just this past week, I was talking with a guy, and he was like, hey man, remember that series we did three years ago? And I'm like, Wow, I can't believe you remember that. But it was impactful for him and for some other people in our church. This is one of those series that if we actually implement what we've been talking about, this series can radically transform you, your relationships, and kind of where God's going to take you moving forward. Uh, The series kind of has this this idea, kind of the big idea is this, that a working theory of the devil's strategy. So how does Satan work in our world? Here's a working theory. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Let me repeat that. So the devil's strategy is simply this. Deceitful ideas, so lies, that play to disordered desires, so these sinful desires of ours, that are normalized in a sinful society. Society. Week one, we looked at Satan and these deceitful ideas, how he lies to you, and how you can fight and combat those lies. Last week, we looked at these disordered desires, the what we call the flesh, uh, and how all of us struggle with desires of the flesh and how we overcome those desires. And today, we're going to look at that third part, that sinful society part, or what the Bible calls the world. The world. You see, the devil's deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they play to our sinful desires. And, and our sinful desires and these, these ideas from the devil, they have a place. They, they, they create this home inside of us because of the, the echo chamber of the world that we live in. Because our world tells you that, that, that certain things that you believe and certain things that you do are okay. So we're able to kind of remove the guilt and the shame and all of those things and go, I'm okay living the way I am because the world says that the way you're living is okay. The problem is the world has, has kind of changed definitions and changed what truth is. And so what used to be called bad is now good. And what used to be called good is now bad. There's no, really no, no moral compass. There's no spiritual north. You know, my truth is my truth and it might not be your truth. And I don't even care if it's the right truth. It's just my truth. And so that's the world that we live in, and so it allows us this, this little echo chamber of our, of our sinful desires and these deceitful lies to grow root and really to cause havoc in our lives. Now, right, let me give you two observations about the world, two observations about our society and where we currently live. Observation number one, things have gotten progressively more challenging or complicated how many of you would say that? Yeah. yeah, that things have gotten progressively more challenging or complicated. Okay, most of us, if you're not raising your hand, you're just tired, or you've forgotten your own childhood. Like, think back to your own childhood. The thing that, like, was the most pressing thing for me when I was growing up was making sure that I was home before the streetlight turned on. Can I get an amen? Did anybody else grow up in that society now? Like, that's not the most pressing thing that my kids deal with. Like the conversations that I have to have with my kids about the world, uh, about people, uh, uh, about people believing there are certain things that they're not and stuff like that. Like those conversations were not happening when I was younger. Things have gotten progressively more complicated, sometimes harder, uh, more challenging. Think about communication. Think about communication for those of you who maybe are, are around my age or maybe older. Like, think about how communication worked when you were growing up. My mom, she had uh, probably the first cell phone, which was a bag phone, right? Like, it was a phone and a bag that we had to charge in our car. Like, that was it. Like, there was no texting, there were no cell phones that we had. Like, I didn't even have email until, you know, I was like later in high school, college days. That's like, all I, I, all I had. The greatest te- technology that I had in high school was a beeper. You remember those things? And some of you, you still have beepers, and I'm sorry. Like, change your job or something. But, like, I remember, man, we would spell out words with numbers and all kinds of weird things and whatnot. But, like, that's, the, that's like, the hardest communication was back then. If you were going to talk to somebody that lived a long ways away, you were actually going to call them on the phone or write them a letter. That was how you communicated. Now it's gotten more complicated more challenging. And I think in a lot of ways, the complications and the challenges that we face today have led a lot of people to walk away from the church, have led a lot of people to walk away from faith. There's a lot of people that are really struggling right now. I haven't seen this many people, you know, wrestling with their faith and, and wrestling with their belief system and, and saying, man, I don't know if the church is for me and all of that. And so what we're doing, uh, just kind of give you a heads up, you, all of you have this, uh, this little invite on your seats. I want to encourage you. Next week, we're starting a, a new series called Losing My Religion, where we're t- talking about this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction. Every person in here and every person watching online, you have somebody in your life who is wrestling with their faith. Or you have somebody that's already decided how they're going to go with their faith. They're like, man, this is not for me anymore. I grew up in the church. This is not for me anymore. Or, hey, man, I'm really wrestling with with what I'm dealing with and my faith system and all of that. I want to encourage you to invite somebody. Because this series, I think, is going to be um, uh, one that we won't forget, one that will encourage us and challenge us. But every person in here is going to need it. So please don't miss this new series called Losing My Religion. So two observations about the world. Number one, things have gotten progressively more challenging or complicated. And number two, there's no greater time to be alive. There's no greater time to be alive. Man, I, 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 like, I, get, I get messed up. I get bugged out when I hear followers of Jesus saying, man, what a terrible society we live in. What a terrible time we live in. The church has never been more persecuted. We've never gone through these hardships. Like, but why couldn't we be in simpler times? Why couldn't we have lived like 50 years ago? Why couldn't we live whatever? And I think, man, what, we are now in the greatest time of history to be alive. I just firmly believe that. And the reason why I believe that is because we have an opportunity as a church to be countercultural. We have an opportunity as a church to be different than the rest of society. Like with the rest of society, they can look one way and do one thing and believe one thing, and we finally get a chance to stand out. We finally get a chance to be different, to say, hey, look at us. We are different. Our lives aren't like the rest of the world. We don't believe like the rest of the world. We are different. Now, this isn't, this isn't abnormal for the church. I mean, to be a minority, uh, especially in a society, isn't abnormal for the church. When you look throughout history, I mean, Abraham and Lot, when they were, they were in existence, you look in Genesis 12 through 15, and, and you see these two guys named Abraham and Lot, and they're, they're representing God's people. They're representing God in these foreign nations, and they had to be different because their host cultures were so different than what God was telling them to be like, so they had to stand out. You look at the Jewish people when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, they had to be different. They couldn't act like, they couldn't believe like, they couldn't sound like the Egyptians. They had to be different. They had to stand out. You look at when the Jewish people were conquered by the Assyrians in 733 B.C. And the Assyrians, man, they were ruthless. These were, these were uh, people that you didn't want to be a part of their host culture. You didn't want to be a part of, uh, of anything they were a part of. But man, the, the Jewish people, they said, okay, we've got to be different. Like, this is, our, this is our reality now. We have to look different and sound different. We can't be like them. Or when the Babylonians conquered the Jewish people in 597 B.C., and they had to be different. They had to look different. That's where we get some of the biblical characters like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Nehemiah, some of these characters that, that we look at and we're like, holy cow, the faith that these people had. Why did they have that faith? It wasn't because of the culture created it. It wasn't because of the society accepted it and said, oh, good job with that faith of yours. It was because they had to be different. And you look at when the Romans conquered the Jewish people, and that's when Jesus came. They had to be different. But you don't even have to look at past history. You can look at today. You look at the church of China. Look at the church in, in Sudan. Look at the church in North Korea. It can't be like its host culture. It has to be different. And now we get an opportunity. I'm not saying that, that we're at the same pace or the same space as China or North Korea or the Babylonians. Or, but we are at a place where we are the minority, which is exciting. Because we're at an opportunity that we get to stand out. And any time the church has been in the minority, followers of Jesus have had, they have to choose one of three responses. And you have to choose one of, three, of these three responses with the times that we're in right now. The first response is you go into a holy huddle. You go into a holy huddle and you say it's us four and no more. You push away the very people that Jesus is trying to draw to himself. You say, you know what? I don't want to be tainted by the world. I don't want to be be, I don't want my kids to be tainted by the world. I, I don't want the world's messiness and nastiness to rub off on me and the kids. Like we have this mentality, like if we have the holy huddle mentality, then we have this mentality that actually the world and it's all messiness is more powerful than my God. Like somehow the world is going to corrupt my kids, even though I'm pointing them to Jesus. So that means the society and the world has more power power than my Jesus does. And so that holy huddle just says, well, we're just going to circle up and we're just going to be us. Let's not let anybody else in here. Let's not let anybody else in our, in our relationships, in our lives. It's just us, guys, and we'll be against the world. That's one response. Another response is syncretism. It's, it's saying, well, let's just be like the world. I mean, let's act like the world. Let's believe like the world. Let's speak like the world. Like Whatever the world does, let's be like that. And so we begin to vote like the world votes. We begin to act like the world acts. We begin to respond on social media like those who are not followers of Jesus are responding on social media. And so we just begin to act like the rest of the world acts around us, and there's nothing different. Like when people see us, they don't see Jesus. They see the rest of humanity. So we can either be a holy huddle, we can, I, then we can become like the world, or lastly, we can step into the moment. We can step into the moment and be a light in the midst of darkness. We can decide that, hey, you know what? We're going to be a church that is a hospital for the broken rather than a carnival for the elect. We're not going to be a group of people that's just like, oh, man, that's awesome. Let's like put on this great performance for the church and and all the Christians and all that so we can be like, wow, what an amazing time. But no, we're going to be a place that the broken can actually come into that those who are messed up, those who are lost, those who are like, man, I don't know if church will even like me or accept me, but I'm gonna try it out. We're like, please come. That we're gonna be a church that is open arms to people who are, who are addicts right now, who are struggling with mental health right now, who are dealing with things that, man, you and I would, might be like, oh, I can't believe they're dealing with that, but they're walking through something. And we have to be a hospital for them. We have to be a place that says, welcome. This is who we are. We want you here. Oh, hold on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amen, Pastor Ernest. Yeah. That's who we need to be. That's right. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm at least talking to one person in the room. One person. Thank you for a person on the front row who just disappeared. So how do we be that? Like, you guys could talk a little bit. Like, if you're like, oh, yeah, okay, never mind. If you just want to be a holy huddle and that's cool, go to another church. But, like, if you want to be a church that is a place for the broken, that's who we are. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. So how do we be that? Like, if we're actually going to be that, then how do we be that type of person in our everyday life to where we're not worried about being stained by the world but the blood of Christ has washed us so much that we're like, I'm good. And so now I can step into it and I will be in a light in the midst of the darkness. How do we do that? How do we be that type of church? Look at 1 John chapter two. I love this passage. Kind of gives us some insight. It says this, starting in verse 15, it says, do not love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. What? Don't love the world or anything in the world. Like I can't love Yolanda's queso. I can't love Chick-fil-A. I can't love the nugget. Don't love anything in the world. And you say don't love the world, that seems kind of contradictory to John three sixteen, where it says, for God so loved what? The world. The world. So that seems kind of weird, Ernest. Like why would one place it says God loved the world, and another place it says don't love the world. Because what the Bible's trying to teach us is that we are to love the people of the world Or reject the values of the world. You are to love the people of the world. That's loving the world. But you reject the values of the world. What are the values of the world? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 16. It says, for everything in the world, everything in the world is placed into three categories. The values of the world are placed into three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. comes not from the Father, but from the world. So it says, everything that's not of God. Everything that is of our society, of our world, that is opposed to God, can be placed into these three categories, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Where do we see that else in the Bible? We see that first in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where we're looking at the very first sin that humanity uh, uh, took part in. Verse 6, it says this, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it also. Where else do we see it? We see it in Matthew chapter four, where Jesus is being tempted in the in the desert, in the in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan, and Satan says, "Hey, hey! If you're God, man, why don't you take one of these um, these stones and turn it into some bread, lust of the flesh? I mean, you got to be hungry. You've been fasting." Some of you, have been, you've been fasting the last couple of weeks, and some of you are hungry, right? So you get that. He's, and Satan's like, Jesus, you've been fasting. You must be hungry. Take these stones and turn them into bread, the lust of the flesh. Jesus no. He says, okay, well, let me take you on top of the, the temple. Why don't you throw yourself down, and you'll be fine. Like, show all the people how powerful you are, lust of the eyes. Jesus says, no. He says, okay, let me take you to the top of the world. Let me show you all the kingdoms. I can give you it all. Satan says, I'll give it to you all, pride of life. Jesus says no. So how does that relate to us? Well, as it pertains to to us, that flesh—it's it's those desires. It's what feels good. It's what pleases me. When you're partaking in something that you're more concerned about it pleasing you than it pleasing God, that's lust of the flesh. Well, it's lust of the eyes. It's when you just want to look good, when you want to be famous, when you want the most likes or the most comments, and you're so concerned about people and what they're going to think and what they're going to say and how you look to others. That's lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and I could do it on my own. Or you know what, I, I'm, I'm the best mother or father, or I'm the best in my, my, my area of expertise. It, it's this mentality that I'm good, I don't need anybody else, and I surely don't need God. That's the pride of life. All values in the world can be put into one of those three categories. So he says, those are the things you should be rejecting. Then look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. So he's saying, do the will of God, don't love the world. So, how do we do the will of God while we live in the world? I mean, how, do, how are we in it, but not of it? How do we love it, but not love it? Maybe a better way to ask this question is how do we respond to a sinful society? How do we respond to a sinful society? Let me give you three ways to respond to a sinful society. Number one, receive what is good. Receive what is good. There is good. There are some really great things about the world that we live in. And in those things, you're supposed to receive it. I love Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. says, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. So there is good and there is evil. So how do you discern what is good and evil? Well, good is this. Good is that which glorifies God, edifies others, and encourages you. Let me repeat that. What is good? Good is that which glorifies God, edifies others, and encourages you. When you find something that does those three things, you're supposed to receive it. You're supposed to celebrate it. You're supposed to thank God for it because every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good thing, everything that that glorifies God, that edifies others, and that encourages you comes from God. So we give God thanks for that. We receive that. What is good in your life? For me, just this past week, I just sat down and asked myself that question. What what is good in my life? And the the first five things that came to my mind, I wrote down. I wrote down my wife, her beauty, and her humor. She is funny, and she is hot, and that is good. Those things glorify God somehow, edify me for sure, and encourage me for sure. I wrote down sweet tea from Canes. I'm just going to be honest. It may not edify Chick-fil-A, but it edifies others who drink it. I'm sure it brings glory to God somehow, and it definitely encourages me. Seeing my kids born, I wrote that one down. I don't know about you, but when I saw that happening, I almost fainted. I mean, the doctor literally was like, "Uh, can we get some apple juice in here for the mail? I'm like, thanks, buddy. Like, just worry about my wife. I'll faint over here. But like seeing that, I was like, what? Like a miracle. Like truly a miracle. I wrote down my dog, Pearl. I have a little Yorkie. It's not a hippo, and it's not a bulldog. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you weren't here last week and you haven't listened to the message, but we still love her. She's still a part of our family. I wrote down the ability to contribute. I love the fact that God has blessed my family enough that we can contribute in some substantial ways to our church, to Bread of Life and some other organizations. Like for God to allow me to be a part of what he's doing in the world, like to me, that is really, really good. What is good in your life? What is good in your life? The book of James says that every good and perfect gift has been sent from above. Do you know what good is in your life? Have you given God thanks for it? Take time this week, write it down. Like it's not that hard. Just write down, man, what is good? What glorifies God? What edifies others? What encourages me? So, whatever is good, you receive it. Number two, you reject what is evil. You reject what is evil. How do we respond to a sinful society? Receive what is good, reject what is evil, push it away don't have any part in it. Evil, sometimes it's hard to discern. And sometimes it's easy, right? Murder, evil. Adultery, evil. LeBron James and the Lakers, evil. Like sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it's really easy to discern what evil is. Other times you have to use a moral compass that is guided by scripture. Not just a moral compass, not just what you think is right and wrong, but a moral compass that is guided by scripture. Because something will happen. Like you'll be persecuted at some point. Somebody will say something against you or about you. And my, if you're anything like me, my natural reaction is to kind of bow up. Like, what'd you just say? Like, we can have this conversation, let's go. But that's not what scripture tells us to do. Scripture says, love and pray for those who persecute you. So it's very anti what the world tells you to do. The world also tells you that porn is okay, porn's fine. Like society's okay with it. You're not harming anybody. You're not actually committing adultery, all of that stuff. But when you look in scripture, scripture says, but first of all, you're a son or daughter of God. And those people you're thinking about or looking at, they might as well be, they might, they might as well be too. At the very least, they're a creation of God. Not only that, but Jesus says that even if you think about, even if you think in your mind about adultery, you've already committed it. If you lust after somebody else, you've already committed it. So your moral compass has to be guided by Scripture, not by the rest of the world. And sometimes to discern what evil is, you need community. You need people in your life. You can say, hey, man, is what I'm doing right now or what I did, is that against God? What do you think God says about this? How do you think God would receive that? And this is something I have to utilize. Because for me, it's real easy for me to allow the flesh, to allow my, my sinful desires to take hold, in certain moments, but I need people around me to go, hey, yes, that's not of God, or hey, no, that was fine, or hey, don't do these things. I need others in community to help me, keep me accountable, but also help me discern what is good and what is evil. In First John chapter 4, it tells us to test the spirits. One of the ways you test the spirits is through scripture. Another way you do it is through community. So you receive what is good, you reject what is evil, and lastly, you redeem What is lost? You redeem what is lost. This is probably the hardest part for followers of Jesus, to redeem what is lost. Most don't ever ask the question, is there value in redeeming this? Is there something lost about this particular thing that I can redeem? And if the answer is no, then it's evil. You reject it. But if the answer is yes, then you've got to figure out how to redeem it. And we do this all the time. You already do this without, without even knowing it. You do this with, with movies, right? There's some movies you're like, no, like that is, that's evil. Like my wife yesterday, she was like, you want to go see Redeeming Love? No, that's evil. <laughs> it's not really, I don't think, but no, it's not for me. Uh, but what can we redeem? There are movies that you can redeem. That society is trying to redeem, that as believers, we can redeem. You look at the music and the arts. There are things that need to be rejected, and there are other things that need to be redeemed. You look at technology. I mean, technology, it's real easy to become addicted to technology. So do we, do, do we throw all technology out? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe we try to figure out how to redeem it. Like, if we didn't have technology in the, in the height of COVID when everything was kind of shut down... Man, we would have been completely isolated from everybody. We wouldn't have been able to have church services. So technology in some ways is really, really good if you can figure out how to redeem it. Or look at certain holidays. I mean, one holiday that most, most uh, well not most, but a lot of Christians will reject immediately is Halloween. And we, when, we, when we started Front Range, we said, okay, do we reject Halloween or do we try to redeem it? And so for us, we just see that there might be value in trying to redeem something that has been lost. And so what we've done at Halloween time, if you guys have been a part of the church in and, and those seasons, you know, we create these little Halloween bags, and we say as your kids go trick-or-treating, hand them out, and, and there's an invitation to church in there and some other, some other great things for, for your neighbors. And it's just one way for us to try to redeem something that is lost. Now, you see, we do this. We ask the question, is this good, is this evil, and can this be redeemed with really every area of our lives, whether you know it or not? I mean, almost every area, you could do all three of these things. I take one of my favorite sports. I love basketball. I love playing basketball. I love watching basketball. I'm not a big college basketball guy, so I love watching the NBA. Now, there's some things about the NBA that are, that are really good. I mean, there's some things that man, we've got to receive. We've got to be like, okay, th- there can be some great things that happen here. There's also some things about the NBA and about professional basketball that needs to be rejected that is not of God, that is not for people or edifies people or anything. And those things need to be rejected. But for me, being a basketball fan, I have to ask, is there a way to redeem it? And so I try to redeem it. One of the ways I try to redeem it is my daughter loves basketball. She loves playing it. And she kind of is okay watching it every once in a while if Jokic is on the screen. But she loves going to games. And so a few months ago, she said, Dad, I have I have... Figured out what my biggest dream in life is. I'm like, oh gosh, what is your biggest dream? In life? I don't know if I'm ready for this conversation. What is it like? You want me to walk you down the aisle at like 42? Like, what is it? <laughs> That's my dream, by the way. <laughs> well, what's your biggest dream? She said, I want to go see the Nuggets beat the Lakers. I'm like, girl, you got to get a bigger dream. I literally told her that. I was like, you got to start dreaming bigger. But I'm like, okay, this is something. Like, this is the desire of my daughter. Now, how can I make it come true? So just last Saturday, we got to go see the Nuggets destroy the evil LeBron James and the Lakers. And my daughter was on cloud nine, on cloud nine. It was one way to redeem a, a sport, an activity, entertainment that has some good, has some evil, but can I redeem some of it as well? And did everything that happened at the game, was it all good? No. No. There was some evil at the game that my, my daughter and I, we had to talk about. Hey, this isn't of God. Hey, this isn't what God wants from our lives. But it was a moment for her and I to celebrate and redeem it. I look at marriage. I think there's some things in marriage that are amazing, that are good, that should be re- received. There are some things about marriage that are evil, that should be rejected. What, what are you talking about, Ernest? What, what's evil about marriage? Besides your mother-in-law, uh, what are some other things you can't reject her. What are some other things that, that, well, the mentality of marriage, right? This mentality that, like, we'll just play marriage because I'm not ready to get married because I'm not ready for that commitment or I've been hurt or something like that. And so we've, we've kind of lowered what marriage is, right, in some ways. Or, you know what, if, like, we're just not compatible, then we'll just, we'll just leave one another. Now, I'm not saying, hey, listen, please hear me. If you've gone through a divorce, Some of you have been through some really, really hard situations. Some of you have been left. You've been abused. So I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about how easy it is for people to exit marriages today just because we just don't don't get along as much anymore. There's some things that have to be rejected. But then you can redeem it too. You can show other people that, man, God can be in a marriage in a powerful way. Some of the most godly marriages that I've seen in my life are those who are on their second marriage. That They've said, you know what, we've seen some good, we've experienced some bad, and then we're redeeming this thing now. And so you get to do all three of these things in most areas of your life. What is good? Receive it. What is bad? Reject it. Is there an opportunity for redemption? If so, redeem what is lost. Guys, We can get in our holy huddle. And we can just say, you know what? Man, I hope the book of Revelation comes true sooner than later. Let the Lord come on back now. And I'm all for it. I'm all for whatever God has. But as I'm standing here right now, he hasn't chosen to come back yet. He's chosen to place me here. And so I don't want to be a holy huddle. I don't want to be like the rest of the world. I want to be different. I want to stand out. I want our church to stand out where people go, man, there's something different about them. Like they celebrate the good differently. Like they receive the good differently. They reject evil. Like they, the, the things that maybe I don't even call evil, but they call evil, they actually step away from it. Man, they're different than me. Man, they choose to redeem things that, that I might not even see, see, see what's lost in it, but they see something that has been lost, and they choose to step in the moments. I want to be that person. I want to be that church to where we are the brightest light in the darkest of days. And we talk about, man, it, it can be bad, it can be challenging, and, man, we're in some dark days and all of that. But a light shines brightest when it's at its darkest. So, God, thank you for allowing us to be here in this moment, in this time. And may your light shine through us in such a powerful way that the rest of the world takes notice and says, I want whatever they have. I want Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I thank you. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this series, God, and how we can have discussions about the the lies of the enemy and how we combat those lies. We can have discussions about our sinful desires and our flesh, God, and how we combat our flesh in this society. But, God, I also thank you for this message. God, this opportunity that we have to stand out. Father, thank you for that. God, I give you glory for that. Sure, God, I would like it to be a whole lot easier at times. I would like to not have to have certain conversations with my kids at such an early age. I would love for certain things to be different. But yet, God, where I stand right now, today, with where our society is, with where the world is, God, I say thank you for allowing me to be alive now. And this moment, for such a time as this, and God, as we look throughout history, we see the church has been in these moments before and the church has thrived. The church has not just survived, but it has grown. It has reached so many people because it has been so different and its love has been so great. So God, make us different. Make our love great. May we seek after you, Lord Jesus. May we set our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. And may you help us, God. Although we may be the minority in our belief system, May you help us to make the greatest impact than any group in the world has ever made. May you use us to turn the tide, to bring some light, to make some change. But God, we're not gonna get into a holy huddle. We're not gonna be like the rest of the world. We're gonna step into this moment. We're gonna run into the darkness with our light shining as bright as it can so that you can draw people to yourself. God, use our love. Use our light for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.